Well, it is very lovely to be back again after nearly three months travelling. Um, it was a very uh, my time my time away was very fruitful, very refreshing. I'm very grateful that I had a chance to uh, spend time, uh, some time with my family, and uh, quite a bit of time on my own also, which was very very welcome. We live in a small, tight-knit little community here and to just, uh, well, particularly New Zealand beaches, I find, are very conducive to meditation. These great big, long, white, sand, empty beaches, just an occasional seagull and uh, some nice bits of driftwood and nothing much else uh, conduces to uh, very comfortable meditation and and uh, yeah, feeling very refreshed really after after this time away. Also meeting up with old friends and uh, time in Thailand with uh, Wat Nana Chat, going to the 15th anniversary of Ajahn Chah's uh, passing away. It was a, a very inspiring, uplifting occasion to be with so many monks. And so many lay friends, some that I knew, some that I didn't, but to reconnect with with the, that community um, and to the reaffirmation of, of what we share is very uh, nourishing, very inspiring. And of course, seeing Tanpunyo, nice to see him. Um, he's there and sends his best wishes to everybody. And don't know when he'll be back, but. Uh, He'll be back. And then in Wellington, of course, I was spending time with Ajahn Tiradamo. And all these different situations, different monasteries, uh, outside monasteries with family and airports and airplanes, very rich time for uh, contemplating and uh, attending to practice. Somewhat different manner from what one's used to when you're in the monastery. And again, very, very affirming. I feel these, these opportunities uh, to view practice from a different perspective. Um, very rewarding. A number of the situations that I found myself in were, were quite challenging. Not everybody out there understands what Buddhist monks are up to. And uh, not everybody likes Buddhist monks. I'm quite surprised, really. I thought all the Buddhist monks that I know are very likable people and the Buddhist nuns. And uh, I guess I'd gotten used to the idea that you know, they're all likable, friendly people. But uh, not everybody likes them. I know there's one situation I was in with when with uh, Anagarika Richard, as he was, while we were travelling, 
Um, we were in a part of New Zealand that I'm very familiar with, uh, Lake Taupo, right in the centre of the North Island, and a place where I spent quite a bit of time as a uh, teenager. And, and I knew there used to be these, the, well, there's lots of thermal hot springs there. And my bones were aching, and particularly my knees, and so I, I hinted to Richard that we could go to this, um, this one area I knew where they had some spa pools where you used to be able to uh, rent uh, private pools so I wouldn't have to go into uh, some public pool. And So we went to this place and uh, he went and inquired and sure enough they still had private pools that you could rent and they're quite affordable and, and they're really lovely, these pools. Uh, just, you know, really large space that, um, that you can have all to yourself and spend as long as you want and so I was looking forward to having a good long soak in this and, and as we were walking down there, um, Richard told me that, uh, he said, oh, the lady in the ticket office, I told her that I, I had this monk who wanted a private pool and were they available? And she said, oh, yeah, we've got private pools, but she says, I can't stand monks. I've got no time for them. They're a waste of valuable space. I've got no time for them at all. And <laughs> okay. First, I thought he was joking. And, uh, you know, New Zealanders, you know, I mean, you know, I, was, I was busy kind of you know, enjoying the fact that uh, Richard was really impressed with how friendly New Zealanders were. I mean, New Zealanders were really friendly, relaxed, happy people. And no, no New Zealand woman would say something like that, and especially when she hasn't ever met me. I don't know if she's ever met any monk. But no, he wasn't joking. Sure enough, she said, Oh, I've got no time for monks. They're a complete waste of valuable space. And, so um, that, that, that settled in my mind for a while and, and took me back a bit. But I was, I was soaking in, I remember soaking in this um, hot pool all on my own. And, uh, and uh, you've got nice little benches in there so you can sit and meditate. And, and so I was doing whatever it was I do when I meditate. And it's not always easy to say what one does. But anyway, just sitting there and... And then interesting, I noticed, well, first I noticed how preoccupied my mind was with what this woman said, and, and I was coming up with these little scenarios, how I would, on the way out, I'd go and, go and see her, and the ticket officer would say, you know, you got a thing about monks or what? you got a problem? <laughs> I was going to, you know, offer a gentle, gentle sort of monk-like reflection, and I um, wasn't going to be too aggressive, just, you know, point out a few things. And so that was what was going around in my mind, and... Um, but it wasn't very long sitting there, and and then all of a sudden it just disappeared. And the contrast, what I noticed, came in its place. It was very quickly, it came in its place, this, this sense of not wanting to confront this woman. And, and quite the opposite, actually. Because I, I hadn't gone through the ticket office. You know, Richard had got the tickets. and so, but I, I really wanted to go to the ticket office just to smile at this woman and just... You know, just make sure she had a nice day. Because who knows where she got these funny ideas about Buddhist monks or monks in general. I mean, she may have good reason for not liking monks or whatever. But a genuine feeling of really wanting to offer her something that make her feel good. And then, and then reflecting on, on what had happened there, how, how easy it is that we have conditioned reactions that if we're not careful and uh, 
we don't see what's really going on, we don't see the reality, then we can create problems. We, we create, I mean, suffering for ourselves and suffering for others. And this is really uh, the story of the world, really, that we all have conditioned tendencies of mind and you know, people say things that are pleasant or unpleasant and, and then there's a reaction. But if we're not in tune if we're not in tune with reality, then what comes next is a reaction. And, and we, so we create this story, we create this world. And right there I could have created an unpleasant world. I could have created an unpleasant world for her. I could have created an unpleasant world for me. Also what I noticed right at that point was that I could have also created a very pleasant world for me. Because the world was very pleasant at that point. At that point of noticing the falling away of being a, an offended or slightly offended, irritated somebody, that it could have become a very happy somebody. And so it was a very interesting contemplation took place and, and it was one that, 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 that's been with me in different ways throughout the whole journey really. It's this, the, um, the tendency the Buddha pointed out, to always become somebody. You know, bhava, there's a Pali word, bhava is the, uh, the activity of mind that out of unawareness, out of not being in tune with reality, not seeing clearly, we grasp, and then in the process of grasping, there is a becoming somebody. And so I was... Uh, I was, I guess, more or less caught up in the process of becoming an irritated somebody in that situation. But with sitting, with returning to practice, with turning the light of awareness inwards and, and attuning oneself with reality, with what's real, there was an adjustment. And then there's the result of the adjustment, the falling away of resentment, negativity, and, and the joy that arises. But it's important, I think, to have this, uh, this understanding. I think it's very important to have this understanding because the way of the world is, of course, completely opposite. That uh, we are encouraged to become indignant if we've been offended or to become... Uh, elated if we're having a good time and with the encouragement from the Buddha's teaching the teaching on anatta of not self we can at least cultivate a view that this tendency of becoming somebody is not a good idea not, not a helpful idea. Even if we don't have any insight into what the Buddha was really talking about there, uh, at least we can, we can take on board the suggestion that this momentum, this habit, is not what it looks like. It's not a source of security. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be so strong. 
can be so, so strong. And it is so strong, a classic Buddhist understanding is the reason it's so strong is because we've been doing it for lifetimes. Impulse, misperception, clinging, becoming, birth, and the consequences. That everything that's born has got to die. And, uh, And then there's the whole process of dying and that as a process of being reborn again, a birth and death, birth and death. And, and we don't have to uh, just see this happening at the death of the body, but uh, this is something we can contemplate in our daily life. And so certainly through this last uh, few weeks, couple of two or three months that I've been traveling, this has been a very rich and rewarding contemplation for me in all sorts of situations I've been in, agreeable and disagreeable. My dear mother, of course, um, gave me many opportunities to contemplate Dhamma. And um, I didn't get every teaching accurately. Uh, Some of the teachings she gave me I I didn't appreciate immediately. Uh, The first visit there with Anagarika Richard, I don't know, we'd been in the house, I think, for five minutes, and she was busy telling him how she still hoped that I was going to become a Christian. And... uh, (laughs) And, and she was, she's very serious about it. She really genuinely hopes that I'm going to become a Christian. And she was very genuine in sharing this with Anagarika Richard. And I was very genuine in my disappointment when I heard her going on about it. But fortunately, the momentum of uh, becoming disappointed uh, at these things was, was, was very diminished. And, um, and likewise, when I was checking my emails and and... She starts telling Richard, oh, he's looking up his old girlfriends. And, uh, and uh, then that she hopes I'm still going to get married one day. I mean, you've heard all this before. And it's just, it's just very interesting that uh, my mother, she's a very determined person. That after 31 years as a monk and, and, uh, and a, a pretty obvious commitment to something that I find meaningful, <laughs> she's got no intention of giving up. And I, I, I actually said to her, I said, I thought we'd agreed not to talk about this. She said, I'm never going to give up on wanting you to get married. You're my son. And, uh, well, so be it. And then also telling me that, um, you know, when are you going to come back to civilization and grow your hair? And it was interesting on that occasion... It was very, uh, I don't know, you know, it's, it's mysterious how these things happen, but when she said that, uh, when are you going to come back to civilization and grow your hair? Because we were, we were just actually taking her out on a picnic. Richard and I had put a lot of effort into making her very happy and going places, taking her to restaurants and looking after her medical bills and, and doing, taking her out on this lovely picnic and she comes out with this uh, message. And But... Uh, for whatever reason, there wasn't a reaction, and I didn't feel the impulse to become an indignant somebody. Yeah. And that's also a wonderful affirmation of practice, when, when we see that happening. Yeah. We get the stimulation of sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions, and then we have our reactions, and, and then we think, oh, when am I ever going to stop? And, and uh, why do I keep reacting this way? And, oh, I don't seem to be learning. And we can get heavy on ourselves and give ourselves a hard time. But it's really important to practice that we catch that. And judging mind, 
and, and respect ourselves and, and really appreciate the effort that we've made and keep making to keep coming back and beginning again. It doesn't matter how many times we react. How many times we react. It doesn't matter. You know that image the Buddha gave about uh, a barrel of water filling up drip by drip. See, one drip doesn't seem to make a little much difference, but a barrel of water is filled up just one drip at a time. And it does make a difference. And each time we react in a situation, and, but we restrain ourselves from judging ourselves and making something out of it, that restraint counts for something. That restraint counts for something. And the renunciation, our commitment to renouncing the, the habits we have of defining ourselves as being right and wrong, good and bad, successful and failure and so on. The, you know, our commitment to renouncing these limited identities and living in faith and confidence and trust in the Buddha's teaching that, we, that practice does make a difference. Yeah. Little moments like that really count for something. I, I know in that particular moment when there wasn't a reaction, in fact there was a, just a, a sense of, of even welcoming it. That... Um, and, and, and although I'm not a Mahayanist, I, I suddenly had this perception that maybe my mother is really a Bodhisattva. Maybe she's really here to teach me Dhamma. I really had a genuine feeling. Maybe she keeps annoying me and prodding me in every possible place that I can be prodded, like nobody else knows how to do, and it helps. And at that moment, I got the message. And I just, I felt, I felt tremendous gratitude to her. And actually, for the rest of the day, I kept bringing up subjects that I thought she would you know, react at and kind of give me a jab just to see where, where my reaction would be. And she gave up. She, she, didn't, she didn't buy it. She didn't say anything more all day. She was just lovely the whole day. We had a nice picnic together. So, uh, so this is worth contemplating, this tendency we have to, this very strong tendency we have to always become somebody. Yeah. Even the addiction to becoming a happy somebody. Well, you know, I went to visit a, an old friend of mine who's now a very well-known artist in New Zealand. And it was just so, it was just so good to be with, be with him again. We used to share a flat together in the, in the way back. And, and I saw lots of friends, actually, lots of my old friends, because uh, with Richard, he, he had a car, and we were able to travel around to visit all my... Uh, old friends that I hadn't seen, some of them I hadn't seen for decades, literally decades, and and uh, ring up and, and say, hello, I'm in the area, shall I pop in? And say, oh, yes, do come on round. And so we'd go round and just sit and drink tea. And then, you know, the, one friend, she put on this Leonard Cohen album. <laughs> and Suzanne takes you down by the hand to the river and all that. And <laughs> suddenly went back 30 years was it 35 years? And, and there the momentum to become a very happy somebody. Those were good years and full of enthusiasm and excitement. But not to uh, deny the experience of being a relatively happy somebody. That's not what the teaching is about. But if we take on board this, the Buddhist teaching of anatta, of not-self, and, and this contemplation, um, then what happens is is that we're just disinclined to take these somebodies quite so seriously. 
and we can enjoy even. I found it, I found it very enjoyable to meet some of these old friends, really enjoyable, had a thoroughly good time. And partly because I don't, I have to, don't have to be afraid of being a relatively happy somebody. If we don't take our somebody so seriously, well then we don't get so lost in it. And then when the sad somebody's come along, or the frightened somebody's come along, because they'll come along as well, you know. Some, I got, I remember getting a very, a very aggressive email from somebody while I was traveling. I went to check my emails and this email came in from somebody that was just one of the rudest, most difficult letters that I've ever had in my whole life. And uh, really, really hit me in the, in the solar plexus and knocked me off balance, actually, a bit there. And uh, so I became very uh, unhappy and very anxious somebody for a while. But again, if our commitment to awareness, our commitment to mindfulness, our remembering the Buddha's view, the right view, that there is no substantial somebody that is worth hanging on to, whether it's a conceptual understanding or whether it's some insight we've had into this, to make that effort, whatever that effort is, to remember that. And even in the midst of suffering, it makes a difference. Because if we can remember that, well, what we're doing or what we're not doing is investing energy in that somebody. And this is, this is something that also that I've found contemplating very helpful lately, that it's very often not what we do that matters, but what we don't do. I had a lovely conversation with Ajahn Sumato about this just yesterday. We had breakfast together, and, and uh, of course it's a, it's a real huge privilege to have a friendship that's lasted so long. I've known Ajahn Sumato for, was it, 33 years or something? And, uh, and to uh, see the fruits of his practice and the, his generous uh, willingness to share the fruits of his practice. And, and we were talking about this, this point of how renunciation that often people will perceive renunciation as being something like, you know, giving up, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, you give up, give up sugar during Lent or something. It's Easter, Easter Sunday today, isn't it? And so uh, people are practicing various austerities maybe in the Christian tradition or whatever tradition. And the, the Muslims have uh, Ramadan and, and we Buddhists, you know, we have practices and encouragements to give up bits and pieces and so on. But it's not the thing that we give up that's the point. And it's not even the drama around giving up things. In the beginning, you know, talk about practicing renunciation and, and it, it can be a dramatic thing, you know, like going on retreat and giving up food in the evening, giving up entertainment and, and, and living celibate and so on. These things can be, take quite a bit of effort in the beginning. Uh, but that's not the point of renunciation. That's not the point of restraint. The point of restraint is the experience that we come to have of the ability to simply let go. Hmm. Now sometimes in the teachings we hear this encouragement to let go, you just let go. And it can come across as an, like an injunction as if somebody's telling you, you've got to let go of something. Like, you know, you're hanging on to this, I'm hanging on to this clock, and he says, let go of this clock. So I let go of the clock and put it down. And, uh, and as if that's letting go. 
that's not the letting go that we're talking about in practice. And that's not the letting go that comes from the cultivation of restraint and renunciation. But this letting go, the letting go of the false identity, is a letting go that happens in the moment. And I can understand why in some religious traditions they talk about grace, because it doesn't feel like it's me that let go. It doesn't feel like it's me that suddenly had the insight that I didn't have to become indignant at something that my mother just said or, or sad at something that just happened. I was with a, uh, a very dear friend I've known for many years in New Zealand, way back long before I became a monk, and uh, we've had many good times over the years, and she's been to visit the monastery many, many times as well. And so we talked about visiting, although I knew that she was uh, disabled with, with Parkinson's now and had moved into a home. We still had this, uh, this uh, commitment to meet up, and, and we were going to spend the morning having a nice time together, just talking about things, and we, were, we actually had, a, had an appointment for... Uh, ice cream and, and uh, almond cookies at 9.30 in the morning, which I know is not what we do every, every day of the week, but this was uh, a rare and, and uh, special occasion, so that's what we were going to do. And um, my very dear friend had a fall in the bathroom and broke a hip and ended up in hospital. And it didn't go very well. Um, the, the way... The hospital was running at that time. There was a lot of accidents coming in and a lot of emergencies, and it ended up that she was uh, being told she was going to have surgery and so she couldn't eat, and, but then the surgery was cancelled because an emergency came in, and then that happened again, and she didn't eat again. And, and there she was, my very dear friend, 80 years old, serious advanced Parkinson's, uh, broken hip for two days uh, waiting. And uh, it was, uh, unfortunately, it was also enough to... to um, unsettle her mind very seriously. And so when we met, it was sad. It was seriously sad. It um, a very, very sad situation. And to be, able, to be able to feel sadness without becoming sad is a good thing. Because sadness is natural. You know, one might have ideas of, you know, you read the scriptures and, and when the Buddha was dying, the monks standing around the Buddha who were crying you know, got criticized because they didn't understand the teachings properly. Well, that may well be the case that when you, you've really finished your business that um, you enter into a different state of consciousness, different mode of being altogether and so be it. But that's not where I am, that's not where most of us are. So uh, what, we, what we've got to deal with is this tendency still to become. Uh, we have triggers that bring about feelings and, of joy and sorrow, gladness and sadness. But if we have, if well established in our practice, the momentum towards not becoming somebody, not judging the tendency to become. The tendency to become is just so. It's, it's there. It's like a stream flowing. But if we have mindfulness, awareness, reflection ready, so that when it happens, and something sad happens, the sadness can be there, but we don't have to get lost in the sadness. And 
And similarly, actually, when just before I came back, just the other day, I was uh, I was in Italy when I got the email. Uh, the uh, a very dear friend, somebody I've known for all the time I've been in England as a Dhamma teacher, Venerable Mio Chioni, uh, a very inspiring, wise woman, uh, well into her 80s and been very sick for uh, well, a number of years, but acutely ill for a number of months. And um, we had said our goodbyes actually before I left England uh, at the beginning of this year or the end of last year. But I got the word that she'd died, she'd passed away. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought that uh, it would have affected me very much because uh, I, she was an old person and, and it was expected. And yet it did affect me very strongly, a tremendous sense of loss and, and uh, a combination of gratitude and very hard to find words for the experience I had when I got this email. But uh, just on receiving it and, and holding it in heart and mind, the tears started flowing. And then there's, uh, then there's the awareness of it and you think, you know, what's going on here? And there's, there's no call for sadness. I mean, this is just life. This is just death. This is just the way it is. But this is also just the way it is that there's tears. And to not have to understand why all the time. If we are caught in always being a somebody, that that somebodiness that carries a certain solidity to it. And we need to understand who this somebody is and to defend this somebody, to promote this somebody, to maintain this somebody or to get rid of this somebody or to pretend about this somebody. But if we're not committed to being any somebody at all, then our somebodies can come and go. You know, we, we become upset about something. We can become upset, but our practice doesn't stop there. We can learn from that, and then we move on. And so uh, even the process of becoming is not something we have to be afraid of. The only thing we have to be afraid of is the length of time it takes us to remember. You know, to remember to be with what is true. What is true in this situation? Even if it feels like there's a solid angry somebody here, or it feels like there's a solid lonely somebody here, or it feels like there's a tremendously happy, elated somebody here, if we really remember, then we have a perspective on the fact that that's just the way it seems. That's just the way it seems. It seemed that way so many times before. I mean, how many times have we felt like yeah, this particular somebody is going to last forever? Whether it's a glad somebody or a sad somebody, or a one or a desirous somebody. You know, you really, I really want something. I really want such and such. Yeah. yeah. Remember this trip we were going on, driving. We'd driven down to Wellington and we're driving back up to Auckland. And I really wanted the weather to be nice because it was a part of the country that. I'd never been to, and I just wanted to have a quiet few days there. And, and we did have a quiet few days. We had a wonderful quiet few days on these beautiful empty beaches just north of a place called Gisborne, and uh, the East Cape of the North Island of New Zealand. Just some stunning beaches there. Those of you that may have seen the movie Whale Rider, uh, that movie was made there, and, and uh, it's a wonderful part of the country, and we did have some wonderful days. And... But uh, I got a little into this momentum of wanting the weather to be nice and, 
and the beaches to be empty. And then when the weather changed, well, there was, <laughs> guess what? There was a little disappointment. But we don't have to get lost in the disappointment. If we don't get lost in the being a desirous of somebody, we don't get, have to get lost in the being a disappointed somebody. So life flows, and the joy and the sorrow comes and goes, and the wanting and not wanting. But these things are not things that we have to judge ourselves for. You know, I'm, a, I'm a good person because I want something good, or I'm a bad person because I want something bad. All of it, all of the worldly experiences, all of the inner and outer worldly experiences we have, is practice. So uh, for me, for the last two or three months, uh, although I haven't been here on retreat in the monastery, uh, were, for the first two months, January, February, there was, I think, three or four people here. And then for the last month, there's only been Radak, who'd been minding shop while the new sewerage system has been going in. Um, and then the other monasteries, most of the monks and nuns have, have been on, on retreat. So I haven't been on formal retreat, but I have found that... Uh, the opportunities for deepening practice are limitless wherever we are, whatever we're doing. If we can remember this view that the Buddha was teaching, then we can learn from every experience that we have. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Um,